Lord, thank you for your word. We bless you for the way that you speak to us by your spirit through scripture. And we pray now, God, that you would speak to us again, that you would uh, reveal to us what it is that you have for us in your word, and that, um, that that word would strengthen us and sustain us and reassure us that, that you're God and that you've got this. Uh, so, Lord, we do uh, ask you to pour out your spirit on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. And a special welcome to uh, anyone who might be joining us online as we continue kind of worship at home these days through this online service. And uh, we're continuing on with our, our strategy of trying to create something of, more of an interactive service for you. Um, so I hope that you're engaging that and are, are finding ways to do that. Um, and we're in a series, a sermon series called Following Jesus. And the series is meant to unpack the implications of Easter for followers of Jesus. Because uh, coming to Christ and seeing Jesus as he is now, the living, reigning, ruling king of the universe, has implications. You can't just move on with life as normal once you've come to understand that Jesus is alive and really is the king he claimed to be. In that sense, this series is an invitation to those who know Christ and have put their faith in him to go farther with the Lord and to go deeper. So the implications of Easter that we've been unpacking. First, when we become Christians, we get a new life. This was the first week of the series. We don't just get a new religion or spiritual perspective. For anyone who is in Christ, the scripture says that the old has gone and the new has come. Or that passage we looked at from Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. You were dead and now you're alive uh, to God in Christ, to a, a whole new life. This is the first and most important piece of following Jesus, understanding that we have a new life. Second, that life is to look increasingly like Jesus' life. That was last week's message. Says uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. As Christians, we don't just think well of Jesus. We follow Jesus actively. And following Jesus means becoming like Jesus. We are called to be like Christ, both in his character and his competence. So, got new life, it's supposed to look like Jesus. The next questions are very practical. What does this new life mean for the two big questions of my life? Who am I and why am I here? The, the kind of foundational questions of identity and purpose. Today we're going to focus on the who am I question with a, a sermon titled Identity in Jesus. Next week we'll focus on the why am I here question, purpose from Jesus. Now we've listened to the scripture from Jeremiah and John, so let's dive right in. We live in a culture suffering a massive identity crisis. Think for a second with me about all the ways we see people clamoring to piece together an answer to that basic question, who am I? 
think of social media in general, not just in terms of sharing information and such, but the effort expended in the way social media posts are made. There are all sorts of identity issues wrapped up in the way people post to social media. One post might need to be funny or, or light and worded just, 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 just perfectly for the situation. It might need to have the right tone or strike the right balance. If you look, you can see these things. There is a ton of energy expended in curating one's online identity. This person wants to be funny, you can perceive. This person wants to be seen as a deep thinker. I mean, it's everywhere. Talk to anyone working with middle or high school students. I mean, this social media identity pressure is huge. Incredible. Or, or think about the proliferation of gender identities. You know, in, in our culture, the phrase, quote, identify as has become normalized, primarily through the changing meaning of the word gender. You know, in general, for older folks, gender refers to one's biological sex, but for younger folks, the word is larger than just that. It can refer to, and this is a quote from the Oxford English Dictionary, a range of identities that do not correspond to established ideas of male and female. Now, I'm not sure how many there are now, but in 2017, Facebook had 71 gender options from which to choose as you completed your personal profile or as you identified yourself to others because that's what you do in a personal profile. I mean, all this effort expended to announce to others who I am, to, to clarify who I really am. It, it's all a, a struggling with identity, isn't it? I, and I submit that what we see in social media and the proliferation of gender identities and in a whole bunch of other examples in our culture is simply a visible symptom in society of the fundamental problem faced by human beings, our separation from God. Now, if you look on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble or something in the self-help section, they will identify the problem as identity, that the identity crisis is the problem. I believe it to be a symptom of the problem, with the problem being our separation from God. So let me, let me unpack that a little. Our church family remembers back to January and February when we did a series called The Essentials, focusing on eight big beliefs that unite all Christians under a common faith. Remember those, those eight big categories, scripture, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, humanity, salvation, church, and consummation, or, or the, the end of all things. The message on humanity focused on the basic teaching of the Bible about human beings, what we are and from where we came. And Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 27 is very important for our understanding of what the Bible says about people. Here it is. Let me read it for you. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created human beings. We didn't make ourselves. Someone else made us, created us. Therefore, we are 
creatures. This is very important. We are creatures. And the identity of any creation is defined by its creator. Think about that, really. The identity of any creation is defined by its creator. Everybody knows that. I mean, think of a kid's drawing. Oh, that's, that's great, Bobby. What is it? It's a car. Oh, of course it is. That's, that's great. How cool. Or, or, or a more adult version. I have a standing desk in my office, and I love it. It's the perfect height for me, and, and the surface area is just the right depth and, and length for the way that I like to work. It's just perfect for me. I, I really do love it. You know why? Because I built it. It's custom made for me, for my height, and for the way that I like to work. More than that, I built it from recycled roofing boards from the rec hall of the resort I used to manage in northern Michigan. So the materials have a story. On one of the framing pieces underneath, I left some of the wood-burned writing of past resort staff members. They used to burn their names onto the bottom side of the boards that were visible from inside the rec hall. The identity of my standing desk is all wrapped up in me, who I am and what I did. It has a story because I have a story. And I made it. I created it. For me, I created it just the way I wanted it. I made it perfectly for me. I hope that you know that God made you perfectly for him. God made you perfectly for him. That's not just wishful thinking to help us think a little better of ourselves and maybe not as poorly of ourselves. That's, it's, that's not just wishful thinking. It's good theology. It's sound biblical theology. When God created everything in the, in the creation account in Genesis, he created something and, it, and the Bible says he looked at it and said, oh, that's good. And when, you, when he created human beings, he looked at us and he said, that is very good. I mean, human beings the pinnacle of God's creation. You are the pinnacle of God's creation and God made you perfectly for him. And because we are created beings, our true identity can only be found in relationship with our creator, the one who made us. The scripture says we've even been created in the image of God and built to live in the presence of God. We bear the imprint of our creator, My standing desk has a lot of me in it. In the relationship between God and people, creator and creature defined our true identity in the beginning. But there was a problem. Adam and Eve, the fall, the onset of separation between human beings and God, broken relationship. And in that breaking, we lost sense of our identity. And we've been on the hunt ever since. Identity lost. But God didn't give up on humanity. Right after the fall, we see God's intention 
to invite us back into relationship with him. Theologians speak of salvation history or the whole arc of salvation in the Bible. And the very first glimmer of hope, of the thought that God might do something to help us even though we're the ones who left him, appears in Genesis 3 right after the fall with the promise that though the serpent might inflict pain in life, ultimately one of Eve's distant offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Referring, of course, to that day when evil would be exposed and overcome forever by Jesus on the cross. And from there, the whole story of the Bible is one of God inviting us back into relationship with him, overcoming the problem now, because only overcoming the fundamental problem will treat the symptoms adequately. The whole Bible is about God inviting us back. The covenants and the law of the Old Testament intended to guide us back toward God. But the problem is, we're frail. Like Adam and Eve, we continue to run from God, hide from God, do our own thing. I remember as a young Christian, I was reading Genesis for the first time and I came to that place where after God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, he placed the flaming swords over the entrance. I don't know if you know that piece of scripture, but my first reaction when I read that initially as a very young Christian was, geez, God, do you have to like rub it in with like flaming swords? Couldn't you just like close the door and put a lock on it or something? Why the drama? Why the flaming swords? And then I heard a sermon on that. The swords were not intended to emphasize the punishment of Adam and Eve. The swords were there to protect Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden and eating from the tree of life. Remember, that was the other tree in the garden, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And since they had eaten from the knowledge of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fallen and and were were now running and hiding from God, God didn't want them to eat from the tree of life and, and permanently be separated from God. The entire message of the Bible is about God's gracious invitation to us to return to him. But the problem is we're frail and we continue to run from God, to hide from God. Not even the covenant or the law could really do it for us until finally God said this through the prophet Jeremiah. We read it this morning. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not look like the covenant I made with their ancestors because they broke my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And in the new covenant, the new relational arrangement with God God keeps both ends of the original covenant, his end and our end. The reason Jesus came to earth was to fulfill our end of our relational arrangement with God. This is what makes the new covenant new. What Jesus did for us did not overturn the old covenant. Uh, covenant. He completed it in the sense of fulfilling it on our behalf. Now, I'm not sure where you're at in your journey of faith, but let me say very plainly, this this invitation to return, this invitation to come back is an invitation we would be foolish to disregard because it is an amazing deal. God doesn't just forgive us of the things we've done wrong. He pours into us the perfect righteousness of Jesus. 
God keeps his end of the covenant and in Jesus, he keeps our end for us. God did all the work and wants to credit all of the proceeds to us so as to invite us back into our identity-producing relationship with him. And an identity-producing relationship it is. That's what that piece from the Gospel of John was about that we read this morning. He, Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The creator came to those people he had created, but we did not receive him. But to everyone who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God again, to re-enter our true identity as the children of God we are, to re-enter life in God's presence as we were designed to live. I mean, here it is. We lost our identity in the fall because we lost the relationship upon which our identity is based. Identity lost. The whole Bible is about God inviting us back into that relationship upon which our identity is based. Invited back. And now, by grace and through faith in Jesus, and by the way, that's the only way, by grace and through faith in Jesus, we can live with confidence and freedom in our real identity as children of God. Identity restored. I mean, Jesus modeled this identity for us when he, when he prayed to God. Remember, he, when he prayed, he would say, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy that connotes complete trust and confidence in the Father and, and carries with it an understanding of a deeply loving relationship between parent and child. And the Apostle Paul discovered the amazing freedom and joy and confidence of this restored identity He wrote about it in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, adopted as a a child. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, just like Jesus did. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Identity restored. Child of God, adopted into God's family. If you're a member of Fifth, you probably remember me sharing this story. It's just stuck in my brain. It was shared by a British pastor friend of mine about a a boy on the playground uh, in the UK who was being teased for being adopted. He, He had been adopted. And finally, after some days, he answered the kids on the playground the way his parents coached him to. He said, after they were teasing him a bit, he said to them, hey, my parents chose me. Your parents got stuck with you. In Christ, God chooses us. Adopts us. God created you perfectly for himself. And and by the way, 
if you're not a person of faith, God wants you back. God is not ambivalent about your absence from his presence. God wants to be God for everybody everywhere. I mean, this, this is a, a whole different sermon, but, but we're all invited back right now. And all we have to do to come home is just ask Jesus to forgive us, to fill us with his spirit, and take control of our lives. It's not a, a magic incantation, but there is a turning that we need to make, and that's all it is. I mean, Jesus cried out to God saying, Abba, Father, and in our restored identity, we can do the same. It's an amazing thing. In our restored identity as children of God, we are like Jesus in our relationship with God. Jesus cried, Abba, Father. We can cry, Abba, Father. In in this restored identity as God's kids, we can hear the words that God spoke over Jesus at his baptism as words that God our Father speaks over us now. Do you remember those words? It's from Mark's gospel. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. By God's grace and through faith in Jesus, God says to us, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if we know that God loves us like this, then we know that God is for us now and always. This is the natural and powerful conclusion of the gospel, that God is for us The apostle Paul got this and and wrote about it. He, He wrote this in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Now that's an identity. That's the statement of a person who has understood with everything in them that they've been restored to their identity as a child of God. Following Jesus means identifying as the child of God you are. It's not an identity we create. It's one we receive from the one who created us. And 
every human being everywhere. You know, a, a primary question asked by missionaries is this. What in the gospel would be good news to this culture in which we're living? Oh my goodness. I mean, think of it. In the midst of this massive identity crisis, this this message of the gospel that we don't have to figure out our identity or create it or do all sorts of work to maintain it. This is incredibly good news. Incredible good news to to our our culture which, which struggles so with identity. Be you pastor or professor, attorney or arborist, business person, doctor, plumber, parent, teacher, bus driver, wealthy philanthropist or bartender. Before any of that, you are a child of God. And God wants you back to restore fully that sense of identity in you that we all might live in God's presence and rest in our identity in Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, please. God, thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you love us too much to allow us to remain as we are. Thank you that you invite us back into relationship. Thank you that you did that in Jesus. Thank you that you do that day by day. You invite us to turn to you. God, our heart's desire is to do that. We, we want to return fully to you. We release anything that might be preventing us from doing that. And we ask you to help us, to pour out your spirit upon us, to help us believe that we really are the people you've declared us to be in Christ. Thank you, God, that you gave us the right to become your children again and to live in a confident and joy-filled relationship with you. We want that. Pour out your spirit on us and make it so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.